Well, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, if you would join with me uh, in a word of prayer as we turn our attention to God's word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we continue in our worship this morning as we turn our attention uh, specifically to your word. We confess and acknowledge to you, O Lord, that your word is truth. Your word forever, O Lord, is settled in the heavens. It is through your word and the work of your spirit that you communicate to us and reveal to us and teach us about our need for Christ. It is through your word, Lord, that you instruct us on how to live a holy life that pleases you. It is through your word, O oh Lord, that you give us direction and instruction concerning all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we as your believing people confess this morning that your word is the final authority in our lives and in the church. And so it is our prayer, Lord, that as we explore the topic and subject from your word today, that you will give us ears to hear, that we, O oh Lord, would respond to you and to your word. May you help the one who's delivering this message to do so, Lord, being consistent with your word. Help me to declare your truth. And Father, we will give you thanks and praise for all of this we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you might know, um, back in June of this past year, June of 2023, uh, the National uh, Council uh, of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is our denomination, uh, voted to uh, ordain women to pastoral ministry. The vote by the delegates to council was 63% in favor, which represents 1,008 votes, with 37% uh, opposed, which is 588. I could comment on the rationale that was given to make this particular change. I could also give you details on the process that was used and even how the scriptures were handled in relationship to this particular matter. But I don't think that that would be productive or helpful for us uh, today. 
And I'm willing to meet with any of you if you would like to know more of the details uh, related to that particular uh, decision. Knowing that such a change in church polity was not and would not be embraced or enacted by at least uh, a third of the alliance, and maybe there's even more, the, denom the denominational leaders and the polity itself has allowed for each local alliance church to speak to this matter and through their own uh, position and bylaws which reflect the congregation's biblical conviction um, a local church uh, can um, develop their own statement regarding this decision in other words, uh, those congregations represented in the one-third would not be required by the Alliance to consider or to have ordained women on staff as a pastor in that particular local assembly. One option uh, in response to this decision that's been taken by more than a few Alliance churches is to leave the denomination as a whole. That seems to be a trend these days in the church and in denominations. In fact, the CNMA is not alone in uh, losing member churches. I just saw a recent article where the United Methodists have lost 10,000 congregations over biblical issues and practices within that particular denomination and church. While leaving the denomination is always an option for a congregation, our elders and deacons here at Faith Alliance Church went back to the scriptures to examine what God tells us uh, in his word the conclusion that we have come to is that we affirm that the role of pastor is reserved for men and for men alone. And to help us understand this decision and thus the proposed bylaw changes that will come our way next week, I want to take us back to the scriptures in this message today and next week, and maybe even if necessary, beyond that. My approach is going to be that we look at um, leadership and ministry within the church. We're going to consider various passages which give us instruction on the differing roles that exist in the body of Christ. And let me just say this, uh, that, that I, along with the elders and deacons, welcome your input and your feedback and dialogue on this subject. 
Here's some preliminary thoughts, and I think that this uh, ties in with even the approach uh, regarding Scripture. Uh, I recognize that there are differences in interpretation and application of the Bible. In fact, how a person approaches the Bible would determine in large part how it is understood, interpreted, and ultimately applied and lived out. Some of the ways that, just in general, that the scriptures have been approached and handled is that the scriptures are there and they are a suggestion. Meaning that they're really not binding upon us. They exist as a, a book that gives us suggestions on how things maybe should be done and how a Christ follower should live. A second way that scripture can be handled is to be selective. And by being selective, I mean taking only particular verses into account in any given subject or topic. A third way is to approach the scriptures and say that, it, that it's depending on the situation meaning that what we read in the Bible may have been true for that particular group of people or situation in the Bible, but is not applicable to us. Now, when, when I talk about the, these ways of approaching the scripture and even some other principles that will follow here in a moment, I want you to understand that I do not imply that those who hold different views from mine or our elders are purposely mishandling the Word of God. So please understand that. I'm not suggesting that they are purposely mishandling Scripture. But it's important whether it's this topic or any topic that we look to the Word of God for instruction and guidance and understanding that, that we apply the proper hermeneutic. Now hermeneutics uh, is a, a discipline in biblical studies on how you handle the scriptures, how you read the scriptures, how you study them, how you come to understand what the scripture in its original context means, what it meant, and then how it's to be handled and interpreted and then applied to our situation, our life, the 21st century. So hermeneutics are important regardless of what the subject might be, whether it's this, whether, it's be, whether it be what gifts still exist and function within the church, whether it be what defines marriage, you have to have a, a solid biblical hermeneutic or approach to handling scriptures. And one of the first, I think, principles that's important is this. Context, context, context. There's always a danger of taking things out of context. Consider the man who wanted to know God's will and what he wanted him to do. So he went to prayer he grabbed his Bible and randomly opened his Bible 
and pointed to a verse. And the first verse that he pointed to was this, Matthew 27 and verse 5. Judas went and hanged himself. He thought to himself, that seems odd. That, that can't be what God is saying to me. So he opened his Bible to another passage. And it ended up being Luke 10, verse 37. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now this troubled the young man, so he thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll do this again, and pointed to another verse in his Bible, and it opened to John 13, 27. And Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then he thought, well, maybe I should turn to the Old Testament, because this just does not seem like what God would have me to do. So he turned to Joshua 1 and verse 9, and said, which says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? See, there's a danger of taking verses of the Bible out of their context to try and prove a point. And, and, I, and I, I say this as a warning to all of us. Because if we're going to speak authoritatively and be representatives of God and his word, wherever the topic might be, let's be sure that we're saying what God says in his word and not just taking a verse out of its context to support a particular view or position or thought or idea. A second principle of hermeneutics is this, that scripture is sufficient in itself. Scripture is sufficient in itself. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me and verse 14, Paul exhorts Timothy with these words, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then notice this. Paul takes this opportunity to talk about the importance and the authority and the inspiration of God's word. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient in itself to address all the matters that we faith, face in life as believers and in the context of the church. And, and let me just say this. I, I, I agree that Commentaries are good. What church fathers have written is good. What different committees may agree to can be good. But ultimately, the final authority is not found in man and woman making a decision and a rendering on what Scripture says. It is in the Word of God itself. We don't sit in judgment of the Word of God. God's Word sits in judgment of you and me and how we live. 
Let me add this too in terms of hermeneutics. You have to remember that you cannot have, or let me put it this way, I'll put it in the positive. It is the law of non-contradiction. What do I mean by that? Let, let me, me illustrate it this way. Something cannot be A and not A at the same time. That would be contradictory. One of the things that has been said in this whole discussion and in this decision is that there are two equally valid interpretations of Scripture. But the problem with that is that they're contradictory to one another. You, you can't have A and not A at uh, the same time. Um, so you have that. And then one, let me add just, just one last thing in regards to hermeneutics is this. Beware of conclusions that are drawn from silence. Beware of conclusions that you draw from silence. What do I mean by that? Because a verse does not explicitly either restrict or command something does not mean, therefore, that it must be permissible. I'm, I'm going to just throw this out there without comment. Just because the Bible does not say thou shalt not smoke or thou shalt not abuse drugs that you should do those things. Or, and this is an argument that is used by some, and it's an argument from silence, Jesus never condemned homosexuality as a sin. Because you will have people who will come to this book and say, well, he never addressed that in any of his teachings, therefore, it must be okay. See, that's an argument or a position that is drawn from silence. And that's a, a dangerous place to build a teaching or a theology. And let me just say this again, that God gives us all that we need in his word for life and godliness. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. So today's message uh, will certainly not be adequate to deal with all the details in connection with leadership and ministry within the church. We're going to explore that further. But let me just say, here are two propositions that I uh, present to you, which I'm convinced are taught and supported in Scripture and can be borne out by Scripture. The first is this, that men are called upon by God to be the spiritual leaders in the church. Second, women are to be supported, encouraged, and fully engaged in ministry. I think both of those propositions are taught throughout Scripture. Let's look for a moment, though, at the church. The church 
uh, is made up of all who profess faith in Jesus Christ and have been born again through the work of the Holy Spirit. God calls each of us who have believed in Christ, and he did so according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14. He calls us through the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed and the good news is shared, God's Spirit is at work through his word, drawing and wooing you to Christ that you might believe on him and be saved. And when you respond in faith and trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, unbeknownst to you and without fanfare or maybe even any feeling of this, the Holy Spirit, the moment you trust Christ and are born again, He, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, places you into the body of Christ so that you are part of the, the universal and the mystical body of Christ that is comprised of everyone from the day of Pentecost to the present day who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And the church, by definition, is the body of Christ. And Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23 tells us that Christ is the head of the church. And we are his body. But here's an interesting thing that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 3. He's talking about being entrusted with the, the mystery of the gospel in the context. The mystery is this, that Gentiles can get saved. You, you might read that and say, well, that's not, no big mystery to me. Well, it was to the Jewish believers in his day because they saw Messiah's arrival and coming just as the means of saving Israel. But, oh, God had a bigger plan in mind. See, the gospel was not meant just for the Jew alone. It was for the Jew and the Greek, the Jew and the Gentile, that they might be saved. And Paul says, I've been entrusted with this mystery that, that not only can Jew and Gentile be saved, but they actually are part of one body, the body of Christ. These two differing people that have always sort of been at odds with one another because of natural inclinations, but also even religious convictions, are now brought together and are one body. That was a mystery in the minds of, of those Jews who were coming to Christ in that day. They didn't understand that, even though God hinted at it and mentioned it several times over in the Old Testament. It didn't register with them. But notice this. He says that he was entrusted with preaching this gospel, verse 8, to the Gentiles of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is plain of the mystery hidden in the ages uh, of God who created all things. Again, this mystery that Jew and Gentile can be saved by simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 10 with me. So that through the church, now what is the church? That is the, the believers in Jesus Christ who are brought into the body of Christ. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, one of the things that stands out to me in that verse 10 is that the church is to display 
and to manifest the wisdom of God. The great wisdom of God. In fact, he says it's manifold wisdom of God. It means intricate, the intricacies of, of God's wisdom, the complexities of God's wisdom, the great beauty of God's wisdom is seen in the church. And it's revealed in the church. Matthew Henry says, so that, that what passes in the church and what is done by it is displaying this wisdom. You ask the question, though, well, what does that have to do with our discussion here this morning and our study? Well, I'm going to say to you this, that, that how the church functions is to display the wisdom of God. We are not a business. We are not a corporation or any other organization like the world has. The church is not to function as a Chick-fil-A or a branch of Amway. And yet too often, and I say this reluctantly, but it's true, too often what is presented to us even as pastors sadly in the alliance, is do this because it's a good business model for the church. My friends, if the world can do it and do it well, and we're modeling the world, we're not displaying the wisdom of God in how we do things. So leadership in the church, ministry in the church, while it may have similarities to the way the world does things, ultimately it should be far better, far greater, far more wonderful than what the, church, what the world can offer. And in our midst, we should see the wisdom of God in how we function as the body of Christ. And God has ordained how that function, how that structure how that wisdom should look. He's given us in his word. So let me begin by saying, as we look at this specifically, who are the leaders God has ordained in his word? Well, let me have you turn, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And here Paul is giving Timothy instruction on overseers. Overseers. Remember, Timothy was a, a young protege of the Apostle Paul and co-worker of his. He was younger than Paul, so Paul was instructing him on how things were to function in the church. After all, Timothy was a leader in the church. And it says here in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble work. Now let me just stop there for a moment because he's going to then go on in verse 2 to talk about an overseer and an overseer's qualification, qualifications. That word overseer is episcopy, which means a bishop. Uh, it has with it the idea 
uh, of one who is, who is watching over a group of people. You'll notice that in this context, he gives the qualifications for an overseer. It's one that, it's, he's one that must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own house, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he might not fall into disgrace and into the snare uh, of the devil. You'll notice here that in these qualifications, uh, he's telling us what the character should be like of an overseer. Men, whether you're aspiring to be an overseer or not, does this describe you? As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you pursuing Christ personally in your life so that He, by His Spirit, will make you this type of person? Regardless of whether or not you ever serve as an overseer in the church. This is a high and holy calling God places upon men in the church. So he gives the qualifications, but also in, couched in this passage, he also gives, if you would, expectations. If I can put it in these terms, sort of a job description uh, of the elder and, and, and what they are to do. Did you notice that he mentions here in verse 4 the idea of managing? Part of overseeing is sort of managing the things that, that are being done. Notice also he says in verse 5 that, that um, this overseer cares for the church of God. To show care and concern for, for what happens and what is transpiring and, and what is taught in the midst in, of the assembly of God's people. Let me be a little bit even more direct here this morning. Elders of Faith Alliance Church, are you fulfilling God's word as leaders in his church? A parallel passage in Titus, if you keep your finger there, turn over to Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. Here Paul is giving very similar instructions to Titus, who is also a leader within the church as concerning other leaders. And notice what he says here in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. See, there's an orderliness. And that you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
And notice this, he goes on again with the qualifications. If one is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now notice this interesting thing. Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Did you catch that? That Paul is saying an elder is an overseer. And vice versa. An overseer is an elder. And may I just point out to you that in both of these contexts, Paul is addressing men. That the terms that he uses are always in the masculine when he's making these statements and giving these instructions. It's interesting that the concept of the elder, though, is, is woven throughout uh, the scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament. And I'm going to take a moment just to take us through a couple of those passages to show you that, that the concept of elders is a concept that is ancient. But yet it's very modern because God calls his church today to have elders. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 7, we're told of the elders of Joseph's household. There were also elders of the land of Egypt who came to pay their respects to Jacob uh, when he had died. Fast forward more than 400 years from that account to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 16. And when God commissioned Moses to be the leader of his people, taking them out of Egypt, he says that he was to gather the elders of Israel. Numbers chapter 22 and verse 7 speaks of elders that the country of Moab had and elders of Midian. Another example can be found in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1 where the elders of Israel were called upon by Solomon. And I find it interesting that in chapter 12 and verse 8 of 1 Kings, it was the elders who advised Rehoboam on how he should conduct himself as king, and he ignored them to his peril. That's not just true of the Old Testament that we have elders. Elders were part of Israel's leadership uh, in the New Testament. In fact, uh, they are the ones that were part of examining the teachings that were taking place uh, in the land. If you look at Mark chapter 11 and verse 27, you will read these words. And, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? And so, notice this, you have the chief priests, you have scribes, and you have elders of Israel who came and were questioning Jesus about his authority. 
And that was their right to do that because after all, that was part of their responsibility as elders among the children of Israel. In other words, to investigate and examine any teaching that may have existed and was being propagated among the people. It was in Mark chapter 14 and verse 53 that it was the elders who were part of the council that actually condemned Jesus to die. And in verse 64, they said he's guilty of death. Luke 9.22 says that he was rejected by the elders of Israel. Sadly, they, they took their investigative uh, authority and they drew the wrong conclusion concerning the person of Christ. When you come to the book of Acts, you see elders over and over again. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 8, Peter addresses the elders of the people in his message when they wondered, how did this lame man, who we knew was lame because he sat at this gate for years on end, is now walking? <laughs> and Peter addressed those elders and said, it's not by our virtue or power that this man stands before you whole. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior who raised him up. And not only can he, he heal a physical body that is in need of it, but he can save it, your eternal soul. If you look at Acts chapter 11 with me for a moment, this is kind of interesting in relationship to this concept of elders. Acts chapter 11 and verse 30 with me. It says that um, there was this prophet that came from Jerusalem to Antioch in verse 27. And his name, verse 28, was Agabus. And he stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And Luke goes on to give us a little editorial word here. This took place in the days of Claudius. So verse 29, the disciples disciples being followers of Jesus, determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers, and that word brothers is brothers and sisters in Christ living in Judea. They were going to send them relief, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Which suggests that the New Testament church took that same concept of elders that we see throughout in the Old Testament and in the time of Jesus prior to Pentecost and they incorporated that same concept by direction of God into the church. In fact, look at Acts chapter 14 with me for a moment. Acts chapter 14. Verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now note this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with fasting and praying, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What I want you to see here in that verse 23 is that, that 
Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey are appointing elders in the church for the benefit of the church, for the blessing of the church, for the care of the church, for the overseeing of the church. And in chapter 15, if you, and we won't take the time to read it this morning, but it's the Jerusalem Council. That's a significant event in the history of the early church. What was the Jerusalem Council? Well, notice this. Verse 1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now let me ask you the question, you who know the gospel, you who believe the gospel, how is a person saved? Faith alone in Jesus Christ. Do you have to be circumcised if you're a man? But you see, there were those out in here who were teaching that unless you as a man, being a Gentile, want to trust Christ, you first have to become, if you were Jewish, then become a follower of Christ. Is that the gospel? So, the church gathered and had a council to determine, is this necessary for these Gentiles, for them to have faith in Christ and be saved, to also be circumcised and observe the Old Testament law and all the regulations that are there? There were some that were teaching that. And you have people in the church today who say that it's Jesus plus. Baptism. Membership. Doing this. Keeping this set of rules. Doing this. Doing that. It's Jesus alone that saves. Not my actions. Even my actions in obedience of following him, whether that's baptism or otherwise. Christ alone saves. So notice this. After Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, huh, I wish we could have had a little bit of the minutes of those meetings. Don't you? They, 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 they took this matter seriously. This is a matter of the gospel. This reflects on God. And notice this. So, so Paul and Barnabas, verse 2, and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. I find it interesting that you have the apostles who alone maybe could have made the decision on that, but they also included the elders. Why? Because the elders were entrusted with the responsibility of holding the mystery of the faith and the truths of the faith and to determine that it was being consistent with what the Word of God said. So they can't come to the church. Verse 4 says that they were welcomed by the, uh, the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But then, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and for them to keep the law. So even when they were together and reporting all the wonderful things that were happening, people are coming to faith in Christ from among the Gentiles, and they're celebrating that, they say, wait a minute, you better go back and tell those guys that they need to get circumcised and follow Moses' law if they're going to be saved. It's like, wait a minute. Is that the gospel? Now it says here, the apostles, verse 6, and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. What? How is a person saved? And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, 
You know that at the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to Acts chapter 10 where Cornelius, who was a full-fledged Gentile, Peter didn't even finish his message and, and Cornelius and his family get saved. And Peter says, hey, in that context, baptize them. They're followers of Jesus. He didn't say, oh, by the way, Cornelius, here's a few other things you've got to add to that. And then if you continue reading on, uh, Barnabas and Saul come, or Paul come, and, and talk about what God had done through them. Verse 12, and all the assembly felt silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they give their report about how Gentiles were turning to faith in Christ. And after they finished speaking, James said to me, Listen to me, brothers. Simon, which is another way of saying Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. And then he quotes the Old Testament and says, Look, God, including the Gentiles in his plan, was always part of his plan. They go back to the scriptures. And notice this. Verse 19, he continues, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them that they abstain from things polluted by idols. In other words, avoid idols. Why? Because that was a sticking point with the Jews. And it should be a sticking point with us as well. We shouldn't have idols. And that they should abstain from sexual immorality. Would you agree that that's still valid for today? And that they should refrain from what has been strangled and from blood. Because remember, God says the life of the flesh is in the blood in the Old Testament. And that would have been offensive to Jews in that day to eat blood. So they said, let's just give them at least some guidelines as to things maybe that they should take into consideration. But, notice this. He mentions that Moses is being read in every city every Sabbath day in the synagogues. So even what he was saying in these directives was found in the Word of God. Now notice this, verse 22 continues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they end up sending a letter. And notice that in this particular letter... Verse 22 says, It seemed good to the apostles and to the elders. They came to a decision. They rendered a verdict, if you would, on this matter that was brought before them. And notice verse 28 continues, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then they mentioned these things that they mentioned. If you do... If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. So they draft a letter saying, how is a person saved? No doubt they included in there, you're saved by faith alone. But here are a few guidelines we want to give you, just so that you don't cause conflict among your fellow Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. So you have them rendering judgment in that situation. 
Well, I have other passages that deal with elders from the book of Acts as well. Let me turn you to one last passage, if you would. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And here the Apostle Paul is on his way to Rome. And he stops off near Ephesus and wants to meet with the Ephesian elders. And in chapter 20, verses 17 to 31, is Paul's farewell address and charge uh, to the elders. Notice verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when, he, when they came to him, he said, and then it goes on with his farewell address. Interesting, I, I want you to see here in this context, and, and maybe you didn't notice this in the other um, uh, context we looked at, but did you notice that elders is always in the plural? There's a, there's a plurality of elders. It's never just an elder made a decision. It is a plurality of elders that are used by God in the leadership of his church. And notice what he, he says here uh, as he gives them a charge beginning at verse 28. And I find it interesting because I think it ties in with this idea that, that one of the primary responsibilities, and there are several, that elders should have in terms of church leadership is to guard the doctrine and teaching of the church. Because notice what he says here in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, says this translation. But you know what that word care for is? Shepherd. The same word that we get pastor from. And I find it interesting that he's saying that they're elders, they're overseers, and they're pastors. And they're to shepherd. They're to care for the flock of God. And isn't that interesting? Jesus said, you who believe in me are my sheep. Sheep need a shepherd and shepherds and shepherding. You know why? Because sheep are dumb. And that's not derogatory. That's our nature. That's me. I need a shepherd. Because I wander away. I can get into trouble. I can get messed up just like the nature of a sheep. And the charge here is for the elders to beware. Beware. Be giving care to the flock. Keep watching over the flock. Keep guiding the flock. Keep them centered on the word of God. Why? Because notice this. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come along among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. One of the 
responsibilities that the leadership of the church by way of elder is to guard the precious truth of the word of God. Someone has said, and I'll just throw this out here. This one's for free. An elder, if you're serving in that capacity within the church, is a place of service, not of status. I'm not going to take the time, but you can read verses 33 to 35. Look at Paul's example. Once again, if I can say, elders are one of the ways of leadership that God has appointed in his church. And elders are to be believing men who are mature in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. They're also to be, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3, godly examples. Thirdly, they are to give instruction in the word of God. 1 Timothy 3.2, one of the qualifications to be an elder and one of the things that speak to the role of elder is that they're able to teach. You're able to communicate the word of God and the truth of God's word to others. And then thirdly, they're to guard the truth. We've seen that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that is also brought home to Timothy specifically about guarding the truth. Take what you have received, Timothy, and entrust them to faithful men who in turn will entrust that to faithful men so that the gospel and the word of God is protected and cared for and cherished and rightly communicated and applied among the people of God. And then lastly, elders are to offer guidance, if you would, or godly counsel. It's all part of that shepherding uh, ministry that God calls the elders of his church to engage in as part of his church, which is the body of Christ. Well, this is only part of the leadership that God establishes within his church. You might say to yourself, what about the role of pastor? How does that relate specifically to elders? What about the ministry of believing women and, and what they are to have within the church? These will have to wait till next time or even the time after that to explore. But if you would join with me in prayer as we conclude. Our Father, we have taken time this morning to look at your word in, in various places this morning. And in this study, Lord, we've seen the pattern that you have established in your word among your people that part of leadership of your people includes elders.
We pray, Father, that as we continue on in the consideration of your word next time, and we look at the other roles and functions that exist within the church, may we come to a clear understanding of what your word says. And so, Father, we give uh, this to you. Help us, Father, to function according to your word and thus fulfill Ephesians 3.10 as we display the wisdom of God within our midst. And Father, we will give you thanks and we will praise you and we will submit to your Son, Jesus, who is our Savior and our Lord. Amen.